Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. What's good, family? It's your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts, the Street Politicians, the place place where where the the streets and and politics politics meet. Listen, today we have the pleasure of being at the Legacy Center, also known as the Black House, which is a crowdfund-sourced effort uh, that Jay Morrison and Ernestine Johnson Morrison uh, put together, raised money to open something like a WeWork. That's the best way that I can describe it to folks. Mm -hmm. It's obviously much more than a WeWork space because um, you have so many community events and efforts that take place here in this historic location in Georgia. Um, My son and I are proud to be two major supporters of this space just And when I say major, I mean, from the very beginning, we have been here and have continued to try to get uh, Black folks to understand the importance of supporting facilities like this. We love the WeWork spaces and other co-working spaces um, that are owned by white folks, but this is a space that's owned by Black people. And and since I've been here today, uh, because we just happened to be in, in Selma, Alabama, had to travel to Atlanta, needed to stop to do our show. Um, And since I've been here, the detail, the the cleanliness, the friendliness of everyone calling one another kings and queens. I see people here working on different um, efforts. They have different things going on where folks are sort of renting space, if you will, to come and use conference rooms and Um, different meeting areas. And it really makes me feel good to know that we, first of all, put our money here, but also that we are uh, just invested in making sure that the Legacy Center continues to grow. And shout out to Jay and Ernestine for keeping this space going. There's a lot of space in this building. Um, And so I know Greenlit Studios, which is 
Ernestine's uh, studio. You know, she's an actress. She is a filmmaker. Um, and so they have a big space that where they do the, her work and Jay's podcast. It takes a lot to maintain this type of space, Mice. It does, man. And when you, like you said, when you look at the detail and the cleanliness and just the whole persona and ambiance of the place, it just gives you like black excellence, man. So I know it takes a lot to maintain it. Shout out to Jay and Ernestine and everybody else. This The staff here is just, they're wonderful. They're helpful. They came in here. Do you need anything, King? That You know, they gave us the red carpet. And it's not just because it's us, it's everybody. I see them treat everybody with the same level of, you know, enthusiasm and respect. And, and that's what you want to, that's what you want to have, you know? So is I'm definitely proud to be one of the first supporters and um, one of the partners with Treff Life in this Black House situation. So if you're in the Georgia area and you need a space, they do event spaces, they have party, they have all different types of spaces. So if you're in the Georgia area, look up the Black House, you know, um, and make sure that you try to patron. You know, yeah, that's right. Listen, it is close to the airport. I don't know. We we dropped Linda at the airport this morning before coming to shoot the show. How many minutes? I don't know. Maybe 15 minutes. Tops. If that, if that. Yeah, to get from the airport to come to the, the Legacy Center. And again, it's clean. There's a kitchen here. So if you and, and you don't have to live in Georgia, like we live in New York, we're headed to New York City as soon as we finish filming our show today. Um, but we were able to make a pit stop here so that we could tape our show and not lose a whole day of work just because we were traveling. So for folks who are flying in and out of Georgia, we know Georgia is a major hub. A lot of people are looking for office space. Don't be so quick to run to the spaces that are owned by people who don't look like us. Remember that the Legacy Center is here and there are events that take place here that are curated by this team. Um, and so if you're just looking for stuff to do when you're in Georgia, check the Black House out and come through. And it's on a big campus. So there's outdoor space. There's space for every type of event that you would want to do. So Mike's getting into the show today. There's a lot of things happening and, um, you know, a lot of concerning issues. It There's always a lot of things happening. I think I say that every week, but it's just true. So I'll continue to say it until there's not a lot of things happening. Um, this situation with Brittany Griner, I really kind of need you to explain it to me, right? Because first of all, I know she's a WNBA player and she's been detained in Russia. I'm trying to figure out why she's in Russia. Is that because this is a place where people go to play like uh, overseas sports? Um, and then I know she is, she's, she was detained there for something that I didn't think was marijuana, but then I don't know. I'm a little confused. So help me understand. Well, um, this based on what, I, what I've been reading, um, she's definitely an NBA, uh, WNBA player. I don't know exactly what she was doing in Russia. Maybe she was there on, you know, working, playing in some of the games out there. But I know that they said that the customs inspection of her hand luggage, they found um, hash oil, cannabis oil, which is considered a narcotic substance there. You know, uh, so they arrested her and they, it, it, they arrested her in February, but they didn't give, the, they don't say the exact date. I was heard that it was, she's been detained for the last three weeks. And we know that based on what's going on in Russia and U.S. being a part of those who are sanctioning 
against you know the war the um mm-hmm. the waging of war in Ukraine mm-hmm. you know that this is definitely going to be some retaliatory you know process so it's you don't want to say that but you know it's it's not really it's not really a good situation they're saying that it's going to be hard you know I'm looking at CNN they say it'll be very difficult to get detained basketball star Brittany Griner out of Russia lawmakers say so you know that's because there's no negotiation table with what's happening with Ukraine and then America using its power um on the I guess at the NATO table to try to stop the the invasion it's a lot so this young lady a black woman um, uh, NBA, WNBA player is there detained in Russia. We're still not sure, which I'm sure once we, uh, post our show, we'll hear from everybody, all the things. In fact, I actually reached out to our brother, Irv Roland, um, who, uh, works within the NBA, um, and works with a lot of NBA players, um, and NFL players. I tried to find out more information in which he was giving me a little bit, but also connecting me with some people who are close to, to Brittany Griner. So, you know, we got to figure this out because, you know, at least the system needs to know that people in the U.S. are, you know, speaking for her, advocating for her, making sure that, um, you know, she doesn't just feel like she's alone. And if she's been in, if she's been detained for three weeks, that's a long time especially for oils, which I thought were legal, but I guess it's not depending on which state you're in. I mean, which country you're in. It's so many, it's so confusing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and they also, you know, just based on the situation, they're saying that the the diplomatic negotiations and just communication is pretty much non-existence between America and Russia right now. And then they're saying that, um, they're very strict on LGBT rules and laws in mm. Russia. And she's a, you know, she's a proud LGBT woman. And so these, these things, we don't know if those rules are going to impact her case or not, but they, this is things that they're stating on CNN right but now. But that shouldn't have anything to do with her situation because like, if you are gay by yourself like it's not like was she there well see we have to figure out what was she doing in russia yeah you know well this is just this is just these are reports coming from cnn from cnn that i'm reading and they're saying you know he he he, the the representative noticed i mean noted that um russia is very strict on lgbt rules and laws though it's not clear whether those rules and laws might impact her case they just, that was something. They're going to target her basically because she's gay. Yeah, That's exactly. Gay. And they have, they have thousands of people signed, you know, to, to ask for her request back. I mean, her speedy return back to the U.S. So, you know, my prayers are with Brittany. I know this is, you know, got to be hard to deal with, man. You go, you're traveling and something that you didn't even know is a narcotic in another country. Okay. At a time during, you know, pretty much non-existent communication between two different countries during times of war and you're trapped in it, like, this has to be very scary. So my prayers go out to her and her family. Yeah, and the prison in Russia, I'm sure it's not the best place that, you know, where you want to be. So also, you know, speaking of scares, we all have had such a traumatic um, three years now dealing with the COVID-19 issues, 
whether you believed it 100% or didn't believe it or you felt it wasn't that bad or was worse than we knew. And if you thought you should wear a mask, you shouldn't wear a mask, whatever you want to say, the virus impacted all of us, every single person. There's no one that can say that they were not impacted, that their life was not somehow shifted. Uh, we always talk about the mental health challenges that uh, we know people experience being locked away. Just so many things happened mm -hmm. over the last three years. Um, and some folks will say, you aren't locked away. But to some people, it had that impact. It made you feel like you were locked away from your family. You have folks that in the last year, you watch them um, have videos where they're seeing their family members for the first time, like for the first time they're seeing their mom or somebody that is like really a grandmother, uh, people seeing their children. So it really, really was um, a devastating time. And of course, in New York, we had the strongest uh, mandates ever, like anything. You couldn't go to restaurants. A lot of people took after us. Um, I know L.A., uh, they decided, in, well, in California, certain places in California, I think it was more so LA though, that decided to follow New York's laws of having people um, uh, have to show your vaccination in order to go to a restaurant, in order to go to certain events, plays, you know, just to be out in certain public environments. And of course, the mask mandates were strict 100%. Uh, mayor de Blasio, our immediately outgoing mayor, just uh, has left office. He was extremely strong and strict on everything COVID related. Some of it I thought was necessary because in New York, it's very different. And you and I have debated this back and forth, but it's different from other places that sort of open air. You're talking about a city where people live real close to one another. Everybody's touching handles and whatnot. Some of it, I thought, you know, and you and I have debated this back and forth. So some of it, I thought because of the fact that in New York, we live on top of one another um, and the way that, you know, people opening doors, everybody behind one another, the train system, which by the way, is a disaster. It was a disaster, MTA before the pandemic, but it's gotten worse because it seems that all the homeless people have moved into the train station and they need help and services fast um, and a lot of different people who have mental health issues. So some of it I thought was necessary in terms of cleaning and all of that. But there were other things that I did not necessarily feel we should be requiring and demanding, especially people losing their jobs for not wanting to be vaccinated. That's something I've never, ever supported. Now they're lifting because we have a new mayor. I'm not sure that de Blasio would have lifted these mandates at, at this time. But uh, Eric Adams, our new mayor, has lifted the mandates as of us taping right now. Um, and there will be no more mask mandates in certain places. And of, of course, unless you're a business that wants to keep the mandate, if you want to say for your business, you have to have a mask. And then also going to restaurants and things like that, you won't have to have a proof of vaccination. There are a lot of people that's pissed off about it. And I mean, then you're what? probably one of them. I'm not, I, I think for me, right, you know, I'm always for precaution, you know, and I, I want people to be safe. I want people to feel safe. I just never was with man, the word mandate. The word mandate 
imposing your will upon somebody's, their bodies and things of that nature. It just never was something that was okay for me. I don't think anyone should be forced into being vaccinated. I don't think anyone should be forced into wearing masks all day. You know, I think the people who feel that it makes them feel secure and safe, you should yeah. wear it, you know, and, and, and or you should take it. I just think those things to me, just it just took away civil liberties of just human beings, you know. So now, now what happens? A lot of these people who who took vaccines because they wanted to be able to go to restaurants and they wanted to do all these things, you know, and they they did they felt pressured to even be able to live a human life. Now these people say, okay, it don't matter no more. And it's a lot of people who never took it anyway. So you you're moving around with people. It just a lot of these things never made sense. Just like you know the whole situation with Kyrie and him not being there to pay home games, but the visiting teams who have people who are not vaccinated, because they, they can still play. Like none of those things make sense. You got people, the, the players have to be vaccinated and the people who come in don't have to be vaccinated. So it's just, it just really, to me, it's like, what, what are we really saying to people? Did, did it really make sense? Is it really adding up to anything? So, I mean, I guess time will tell. I guess you have to make that decision for yourself. You gotta be able to say, okay, does it make sense to me? Am I safer now? Did is did anything change, you know, in in the way that we we handling it now? Or these people who who haven't been vaccinated are still able to do all the things they've been doing, and some of us had to get vaccinated and didn't. Like you know, so I just guess we just got to see. You know, I hopefully I want to see how this plans out because I'm I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan. I want Kyrie to be able to play in the next <laughs> year. So I just want to see how this affects his eligibility to be able to play, you know, hopefully they'll be able to pick up Kevin Garnett. And, you know, so that's one of the main things for me is like with sports and, and basketball was probably the only sport who really suffered. The rest of the sports did, you know, you had Aaron Rodgers and them who weren't vaccinated or anything, and they were able to play games the whole year, but you had somebody like Kyrie who, you know, took his stance and, and decided that for his personal you know, health and his own personal readings based on his own studies, you know, for him, he decided he didn't want to, and he was penalized, and people made fun of him, and people called him all types of names, and now we, we right back to where you can just do whatever you want, so it's like a lot of people experience unfair treatment, you know, based on these mandates and, and certain things, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm just interested to see how do people move forward, what is going to be the response. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's going to be, it's interesting because there are people who was like, I'll never go to a restaurant in New York City. They went to Westchester, they went to New Jersey, and they are determined not to be vaccinated. So you still now have those people unvaccinated without masks and now being able to sit right next to you in a restaurant. You won't know the difference. Then you have people who felt forced. And when I say felt forced, I'm talking about people who were emotionally damaged because they had to get this vaccine emotionally damaged like it was a lot of stress on several people including family members and friends people who are close to me that were really going through hell making the decision about whether or not they had to take this this vaccine and now to see that these you know the the mandates have been lifted i mean i believe that they should have been lifted because here's the thing it's all about going in the right direction, right? Like people were saying before, oh, they went from 10 day quarantine to now it's down to five. And there were people who were like, why does it have to be, oh, now all of a sudden, and it was like a big deal. And I'm thinking to myself, 
if you live in a society where you something bad happens, there's supposed to be measures to clean things up and get it to a place where it doesn't have to be as stringent as it was in the very, very beginning. That's the goal is to move towards things being, you know, better. Right. And so if we went from 10 to five, that means we're going in a good direction to eventually come from under all of this. So, of course, the mandates being lifted, it's a good thing, especially because how many of our friends and people we do business with that came. I'm just thinking about at one point. Um, I don't know. I don't even know whether she's uh, vaccinated now. But anyway, I won't even say her name. So we won't even get her targeted. But someone who's very who works with us is very close to us, came from out of town and they couldn't we couldn't go out to eat because it was freezing and raining outside. And Dave, she wanted to take us to lunch and we couldn't go out to eat because she was not vaccinated. So these things, um, you know, we, we, we hope will change, but how does it impact somebody who felt they had to take that needle? And, and it's just, I don't know, like you said, it all remains to be seen. And there's all kinds of hypocritical stuff that goes on in this damn country. So, hey, what's, what else is new? And speaking of, you know, hypocritical stuff, I don't know, maybe it's not. And maybe sometimes we're a little too hard or I don't know. I'm starting to feel like maybe it's me. But, you know, I've been watching the news and obviously Ukraine is like really messed up. Like it's really messed up that Putin, a man, a one man could just decide he's going to go bully some people in another country. It's not right. And I see all these people being like, it's not our problem and we this and that and the third. But as we all know, it is our problem because if you're looking at them skyrocketing ass gas prices up there, you know that it is we are being impacted. There's a lot of stuff that is being impacted based upon what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now. And there is going to be more. And we have not seen the like full extent of it. It could potentially get violent here in the U.S., so we're, we're, we're in a situation here where you can't ignore world crises. You have to know what's happening. You got to be aware. And there have to be people within the activist community and the advocacy communities like Sean King and others who help to dissect what's going on every single day so that we are aware as well. It is not okay for us to just be ignorant. Like we got to know what's going on in this world, because guess what? If we were paying closer attention to what was happening with Iraq and, and the oil and the war and all of this stuff, perhaps we would have been much more knowledgeable when those planes hit nine hit in 9-11 but or in the middle east because that's more than just iraq you're talking about a whole bunch of shit that was happening at that time um that that i don't think a lot of us were really paying attention to so with that being said with this ukraine situation yes we need to know but we can also feel um violated to some extent that that we as a country that is all over the place in the U.S., we got mad issues, like mad issues. We've got homelessness, as we just talked about, people being houseless, if you will, as a more respectable uh, way of describing it. And we just talked about that. People on the trains all over. You got people, poverty, you got hungry children. I was listening this weekend to some stuff that uh, Reverend Dr. Barber was saying he was laying out like before COVID, all of the different crises that existed. We've been we in trouble. And yet our government, our president is asking Congress to give a little more than six billion dollars 
to him so that he can spend money on the war in and, and try to help out with Ukraine. Yes, we have to protect our interests. You said that on the last show. You broke it down to me and explained it. And I was kind of like, eh, but then you were explaining. Like, if we do business with people and being a major superpower in this country, we cannot just let security things happen that we're not engaged in and making sure we protect our interests. And there are Americans there in Ukraine. So I get it. I get it. But $6 billion, when we can't feed people right here in the U.S., I can see how that's pissing people off. I mean, it's it's definitely pissing people off, and it's, it's it just goes along with just the politics and the 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 capitalistic structure of America, you know. And that's that's what we feed into. Like we always figure out why we don't have money to do things in our community that affects us, that directly affects the people who are marginalized and are starving and need things. We always trying to figure out where do we get the money from. But like Tupac said, we got money for war, but can't feed the poor, you know, and it's a reality. We've always had, we've always found billions of dollars to give to different nations and different countries for different, you know, for war and, 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 and for things to help build up other countries and, and things that don't directly impact us, especially us in black and brown communities. So it's, 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 it's understandable when people say, what? Why are we fighting Ukraine? Why are we worried about that? We have to understand that because when we look at these gas prices, when we look at the, the effect that, you know, these sanctions, now Netflix, TikTok, Spotify, H&M, Disney suspended service to Russia. When, when they look and they say, okay, word, y'all doing that? Now, it, it, that's, those are when you re, really understand that those are declarations of war. They're, they're banks that their money has been trapped in and held in, you know, they, their economy is plummeting. Those are acts of war. So when, when you look at those things, understand that the possibility of Russia attacking America based on those things and understanding that these are nuclear superpowers. These are not regular people who got a couple guns and they're going to shoot. And it's going to be on a little. No, these are nuclear superpowers. And that's why whenever there has been talk about Russia and U.S. going to war, they understand the catastrophic nature of such a war. They understand that nuclear powers and bombs have the, the capability to wipe out whole states at one time. They have, and have um, nuclear, the, the chemicals can completely just destroy and, and cause cancer and all types of different illnesses within our bodies for decades and centuries. So these are things that we have to be aware of. So when people are like, yo, we ain't got time to worry about. No, as and, and, and you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when you see someone who's like Putin, who is a dictator, who's constantly taking over land and, and imposing his will, what is him to stop? What's to stop him from constantly doing that? And then when you don't establish yourself as a superpower, he already said, if you're able to control certain things and we don't feel safe anyway, and my life can be taken, why do I care if everybody dies? This is the mentality of a dictator. So you got to look at this and we have to be very careful and acknowledge what is going on. Yes, we deal with a lot of things in our communities individually, as a, as a collective, as black and brown people. And we feel like those things should supersede, but we're talking about something that can be catastrophic to the world. 
that can like war between America and Russia is something that nobody wants to see that we've been talking about for years because we understand that these are nuclear superpowers. So we have to be very attentive. I know that we, we look on our block and say, well, we ain't got nothing to eat and we're trying to figure out this. We got gun violence and we talking about police brutality and my man just got shot. Yes, those are very serious things, but this is also something that's gonna affect not just you, but your kids and, and to see if they have kids. So this is a serious situation. Well, and, but, but then my, my thing is, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I completely agree and understand what you're saying. But I, I, I guess, and that as, in fact, I'm going to use this as my thought of the day today. Here's my thought of the day. What if Netflix... And uh, what did you say? You told me Netflix. You said something, somebody else. Who was it? Netflix, TikTok, TikTok Spotify, Spotify Disney. Disney, all these people. What if those companies felt the same way about and, and had the same passion for against police brutality, against racial injustice, right? Not just giving a few dollars to a, a, a black organization or, you know, to somebody who they feel is involved in the space, but literally saying we won't even do business with people, individuals and otherwise who are uh, invested in, in, in racial injustice. And that's not hard to know. It's not hard to know because what did they say uh, again this weekend, what we learned while we were at the commemoration of Bloody Sunday, 57 years since uh, John Lewis and others went across the bridge fighting for voting rights and they were beaten bloody, um, even women. Um, I forget the, the lady's name, Amelia. Lord, I always say it and now it's, it's, it's escaped me, but I'm going to um, make sure to get it. But anyway, these are people who were, 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 were bloodied on that bridge fighting for voting rights, right? And, and what Reverend Barber said was, that people will give, corporations will give money to Bloody Sunday, but then turn around and use some of that same, their same resources to fund the Republican senators who are against everything that we were fighting for on Bloody Sunday and still today. So these, these senators and others who are, um, and, and again, this is not to take anything away from Democrats who are also problematic, but we're talking about Republicans specifically who have voted against and also have been on their own creating laws that are suppressing the votes of people there in Alabama and across the nation, these same corporations will invest in those senators and be a part of, you know, don't get me started with their corporate initiatives that are unfortunately um, investing in the oppression of black and brown people and then yet say, well, we're going to give a check over here to make sure that, you know, you can do a commemorative event on Bloody Sunday. That to me doesn't make sense, but I can see and I, and I see how people feel like, damn, but you will go and put sanctions on a country, which by the way, the citizens of Ukraine are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly yeah. white. 
And, and, and we're yes, seeing how even, even in wartime, how blacks are being treated, right? The blacks aren't being able to get out of the country. You know, there are a lot of black people saying they experience all type of racism. I seen a guy that was doing an interview and they were talking about, he was talking about fight for here. Y'all don't even care about me. You treat me, I'm black. Yeah. When I fight for here, y'all still gonna treat me like I'm black. You still don't have any respect for me. So racism is, is, is a worldwide issue. It's not just a country, it's not just the United States. It's a worldwide issue and it shows up like this. It shows up, as you said, you know, wh wh why they don't, because they don't see it. Like they said, racism is, is American as apple pie. Racism is something in America, it's, it's part of the, the everyday culture. So they, they, you know, sure we wanted, if, if we can do a little things to give you, but we don't really, they don't really actually think that racism is not gonna exist. They acknowledge that it's there and they wanna do their part. Some people feel guilty. You know, they have white tears and they want to give you a couple of dollars. We make a hundred billion dollars off racism. So we can give you a couple of million to say that we did our part, but we're not going to do anything to stop racism because if we actually stop racism, then it actually means that we have to contribute and, and give back, you know, the equity that, that, that racism has taken away from black people, right? Who wants to be a part of that? Who wants to be a part of creating equity and equality that black people are, are really equal, right? It means that I have to give up some of, some of my stature, some of my possessions, some of my money, some of my land, and make sure that we do right by the people who have been, you know, have been ostracized in this country for years. So nobody wants to deal with that, they, of course. So when you talk about sanctions, they look and see other white people die and they see it's a bad thing. Oh, we could do that. We could pull course to that because that doesn't affect our money. If we don't do anything in Russia, we still we still got billionaires over here. That's just extra thing. And we we aligned with that because we don't want to see that those things happen. But in America, our the, the most of the corporations invested in black death because that's one of the biggest things. The jail system, us dying, the drugs, all of the things that creates the hierarchy for corporate organizations to run is the things that affect black people at the highest and destroys us at the highest rates. So they can't do that. They, 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 they fight against their own investments. Mm. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbroke, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. 
Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. That's how we own it! Well, that's some powerful stuff. We should invite our next guest to come and talk about this, because this is some of the stuff that we were going to cover today, and we just sort of got into it. I want to talk about Palestine, too, but we'll talk about that uh, hopefully with our guests. So let's bring on... Reverend Mark Thompson of Make It Plain, our fighting soldier who's been battling on the ground for a long, long, long time and and really been a mentor to so many of us as you have been mentored by the older generation of civil rights leaders. You're now mentoring so many and um, we just experienced Bloody Sunday together, the, the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. We spend it together every single year. Um, we left Selma today and came to do our show and said, we got to have Mark Thompson to come on and give us some context. And you out there on the ground. So tell us what you're doing. We are marching from Selma to Montgomery, recreating the march that occurred 57 years ago. Um, when Dr. King and others, John Lewis and others, Ralph Bunch, Coretta Scott King, Kwame Ture, Willie Ricks, all marched to support the community of Selma and to demand voting rights. On March 7, 1965, it was a Black Lives Matter march plan to avenge the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who had been killed by the state troopers in Marion, Alabama, during a voting rights protest one evening. The plan was to march Jimmy Lee Jackson's coffin uh, to the state capital of Montgomery to avenge his death. And ultimately the the plan changed and they did not march with Jimmy Lee Jackson's coffin. They marched in the famous scene we all know now historically where they went across the Evan Pettus Bridge and were brutalized by the Alabama State Police at the behest and on the orders and instruction of no good racist Governor George Wallace. After that, there was a, a, a world convergence on this little town called Selma that we come to every year to organize. And that movement brought about the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Nothing else did. So we come every year. I am uh, honored to be on the board of the uh, Bridge Crossing Jubilee. And every year we organize this event. It is the only uh, annual commemoration of a civil rights event. Now, I know I talk to people all the time when we do the March on Washington, but we actually have not traditionally done the March on Washington. So this is the only civil rights event that is commemorated every year. And so we are here recreating this march every day. There'll be a different organization leading us on 10 miles for five days to the 54 miles in Montgomery. Today, you happen to, I happen to join you while the Poor People's Campaign, the uh, Rainbow Push Coalition, 
uh, and the Transformative Justice Coalition, uh, Barbara Arnwine's organization are leading the march. So my son, you were going to ask Mark um, some of your thoughts from being there yesterday. The vice president, uh, Kamala Harris was in uh, Selma yesterday. That does not happen every year. Every year, uh, generally, whenever there is a major election, all the elected officials show up. We've we've been there when President Obama was in town. Uh, we've been there for other individuals. And I guess in 2000 and what was that? Whenever the last presidential election, 20, I don't know, y'all y'all tell me, but um, everybody was there. Bloomberg, Buttigieg. Obama was there in 2015. Obama was 2015, but I mean, this last most recent presidential election, Joe Biden, Bloomberg, everybody you could think of, Lottie, Elizabeth Warren, Lottie Dottie and everybody was in, in Selma. So this is every every few years, we have this moment when people really show up. And yesterday, uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris was there and she walked across the bridge. So my son, you go ahead. Okay, so no, no, what, what, I, what I was saying is, you know, I've been blessed to been going to Selma for the last seven or eight years. And um, it's always good to be around our brothers and sisters as we, we acknowledge and understand the, the process and the dedication and the sacrifices that our ancestors made on that bloody Sunday day. But in my, in my opinion, over the years, you know, a lot of politicians, a lot of different individuals are starting to utilize it as some level of performative thing rather than actual recommitment to what Bloody Sunday actually represented. You know, I've been getting the feeling that I'm watching a lot of, some of them I, I, I know have been fighting with us, but it's starting to seem like a lot of these politicians and certain individuals are coming because they get these photo ops, you know, and they say that I, I represented Selma. You know, I, I just want to get your personal view. What do, do you think that at some point is getting more performative than actually people recommitting to what it is that this Bloody Sunday is supposed to represent? Well, I think that's partially true, but I also think it, it's somewhat natural. For example, the first black president came, um, the first black woman vice president came because I think we do have to acknowledge they would not be if not for Selma. If there were no Selma, there would not have been a Barack Obama. There would not have been a, um, a Kamala Harris. If not for Selma, we would not have the opportunity to have the first black woman Supreme Court justice. Um, and just parenthetically, we talk about this more later. If there were no Selma, there would have not been, there would not have been a Jimmy Carter or a Bill Clinton either. I just want to make that clear also. Um, so to a certain extent, people feel the need to come to pay homage and respect to the blood that was shed that put them in power. But you're right, that's when it becomes performative because that's as far as it goes. Uh, where is the real relief that people need? And right now, the greatest need for relief is in our voting rights. Um, and we're at a, a very dangerous place because if the Democratic Party, which is the greatest beneficial, beneficial and continues to be the, the, the greatest beneficiary of Black vote, if it cannot deliver and protect our voting rights, then what exactly is going on and what is the point? Um, and so we're not in a good place. 
Some said when the vice president came Sunday that it did not have a lot of meaning. It was hollow because the White House she serves could not protect our voting rights. And so that is, that's when you get into the performative or if it's not performative at best, it's, it's just ceremonial. It's just a commemoration. It's just a reminiscence. But some were saying, where is what we need? Because we are almost going back to pre-1965 voter suppression. We are almost there. So the bill that our people fought and died for, it's just about all gone, right? So what really are we doing? And if, 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 if Selma is not an opportunity to reinvigorate ourselves, to get in these streets and get done what needs to be done, done long term, then of course, it ultimately does end up being performative. And then also one thing I want to say, okay, good to me, okay, you go, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say that another thing for me that's very troubling is that every time I go to Selma, I see gentrification, but I don't see investment in community, right? And I feel like we've been we've had this conversation for years. And, and, and of course, Hank Rose um, and, and Fire Rose, who are two of the great leaders there in Selma that have continued to uh, make sure that Bloody Sunday happens and that people never forget the history of, of, of Selma. But I can't help but think about how they have constantly, you know, been really um, advocating to all of us that there must be an investment so that the residents of Selma know that it's not just about a bridge, which still happens to be named by a racist, but that's a whole different part of the conversation, right? But that, that, that there would be an investment in those people's lives. And we always drive around when we go, come to Selma, as with any other city we go to, we drive around and we talk talk to the people. There's extreme poverty and desperation and gun violence and every issue that you find in other urban communities happening right there in Selma. Where is the investment and what is the and and what what do we need to be saying to people? I feel like we should be telling some of these presidential candidates and other people, not just candidates, because there are also folks that consider themselves to be leaders who have resources that don't do anything for Selma after they get their photo op on that bridge. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and, and Selma is suffering uh, economically, as a matter of fact. Um, Selma... The, the level of poverty in Selma, the lack of jobs, the lack of opportunity is real. Um, one thing Congresswoman Terry Sue said emphatically, I heard for the first time on the bridge, is that, you know, what is the point in having a commemoration in the place if we're not upholding what the people need in that place? Selma is poor. Selma has had an increase in gun violence. Selma has had 25 murders in recent months. And it's a little small town. And yet some only has about 28 police officers, what I'm told. Mm. I mean, so, so there, there's, there's nothing there. We all, that's the other thing. People come to Selma to commemorate, um, but then nothing is left behind. And so to, to the point of performative, see, whether we can get voting rights or not, this Cliff Albright, Black Voters Matter walking by, whether we can get voting rights immediately or not, on them politicians on their bridge uh, uh, the other day, can bring some type of economic opportunity to Selma tomorrow. They can all do that if they would but choose to do so. Uh, and so that has to happen. And it ought to be treated as a sacred space, not just once a year, but throughout the year, so that its residents uh, can find jobs, get some sense of income, 
I get off the streets, all of that. But that is that is what's in jeopardy, and that's just not what's happening. And it has to happen. But for the first time, I'll say, and all the I've been coming down here and organizing in Selma for over 20 years. I've lost count, not quite 30, but just over 20. Um, this is the first time this year that I have heard that type of um, commitment and that type of conversation about real economic investment and economic opportunity in the city itself. The last thing I'll say on that is um, because it is such a tourist location, I mean, there's some cities, as we all know, who thrive, cities which thrive economically um, when it comes to tourism. You can create jobs from tourism. You can live, I mean, that time, y'all seen it. You, 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 can, you can make some money for people and create jobs for people if that is the biggest industry. That could be the most lucrative industry in Selma. If there are those who would but just do it. I have to wonder though, whether the reason it's not being done is because there's still some level of resentment mm. for what Selma stands for. Maybe we really don't want Selma to be successful. Maybe we want to continue to punish this little small community and some of the people, hundreds of them, whose names were never, we all know John Lewis's name, but there were people on that bridge with him who were still alive, who were still in Selma. Uh, you all saw yesterday, and that's one of the things you all got frustrated, speaking of the politicians, they were pushing the foot soldiers, we call them the foot soldiers, those who were actually on the bridge March 7th, they were pushing them out of the way to get on the pitch and get in front and be seen, you know, and, and uh, uh, that was despicable to all of us. These are the people who were beaten up um, for the sake of voting rights and beating up on that bridge uh, in Selma. You all probably hear Rip Barber's voice behind me. They're getting ready to have a program. This is one of the stops here. Uh, I just wanted to kind of come in and give you all a minute to hear that and get a glimpse of that. Reverend Jackson uh, is also here um, uh, with us. And um, this is a committed group of people. Every day of this week, someone is going to be some organization will be marching. Uh, National Action Network has today, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Black Voters Matter, all of the uh, 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 labor organizations uh, uh, have a day. Um, and um, so we're organized. We're, we're here. We're here uh, believing in this. There's somebody you know. Wave Reverend Jackson. That's to meet in my son's podcast. Um, so I saw so him. Is, I saw him yesterday out there. I said he's he's gonna walk as long as he can walk across that bridge. And I understand. I understand. Let hey Reverend Barber. Hey there. So um Mark, my son, I know you were gonna jump in, but I was gonna say I didn't think about the angle that there is possibly uh, resentment about Selma, right? But I did think of this conspiracy theory that I don't think is too much of a conspiracy. I think it's more of a theory. I believe they also are waiting out the residents to leave so that they can gentrify the entire town. Hey, Fire Rose and Cliff Albright, look at that. People, um, people, look, they doing business and you in their face with the phone and the camera. But I believe they waiting the residents out so that people can leave so that they can buy up that land and those homes and all of, cause exactly listen, there's plenty of, right? There's plenty of space around and a lot of, you could you can make those buildings into, um, you know, uh, different types of businesses. Barbara Arnwine, look at that, everybody's there. 
everybody's there um these are all these are all folks who have been in the fight just for those people who are listening and or watching what we're seeing right now is uh reverend thompson reverend mark thompson is walking through the first stop on i don't know if it's the first stop but one of the stops today on the march from selma to montgomery which is a historic march Folks think about the bridge crossing, but what they forget is that they weren't just crossing the bridge uh, just for the sake of having a march over the bridge. They were walking from Selma on one side of the bridge to Montgomery, which is 54 miles down the road. And I've actually done that march a few times. It's no joke. It's hot as heck out there. Um, the roads are long. And along the way, so when they first went over that bridge, they didn't make it. There were many issues. They had to turn back one time. I mean, there's different stories about things that happened. But once they did make that pilgrimage, if you will, from Selma to Montgomery, people died, right? There, was, there were incidents that happened. And as you walk down the 54-mile mark, there are places that are historic locations where you will stop and learn about folks who died, people who were brutalized, and other interactions with law enforcement and white supremacists who were out there. So this, these folks who are doing this, this is not just something to do. This is a very sacred march and a pilgrimage, if you will, um, throughout our history. But to go back to the economic point on Selma, I think they're waiting people out. I think they want to clear out the town. Looks like you were going to say something about that. John. No, I, I definitely agree. You know, when you when you look at just the, the level of poverty that they are allowing to happen in that town, in the space, especially in right by the bridge where all of those things, like you said, those can be used as tourist place. They can be selling memorabilia from different or from different things. And everybody would come there just to see that if it was something that was highlighted and promoted properly. So when you watch and you see that a lot of those buildings are abandoned, a lot of the property has been destroyed and left to be destitute and decrepit, you you have to acknowledge that it's for a reason, you know? And, and I think that if, you know, and I want to go back to this, you were talking about a lot of these, you know, elected officials and people who come there. I don't even think that they have to invest all year, right? I think that if everyone who went there through that year, hey. I just, I just want to, I know you all interviewed me, but I think we do well to acknowledge uh, Ahmaud Arbery's dad, who was here. Yes, sir. Brother Marcus How you doing, Arbery. brother? That's, that's, I met him a few times. And, that's and, 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 and we need to understand, he is here. This is consistent with what happened 57 years ago. There's no delineation between Jimmy Lee Jackson, mm. who was killed in 1965, and Ahmaud Arbery. That's and right. we're still dealing with thing. And it says something, despite the, what this family is going through, he and his family have joined us on this march. Mm. And I just wanted to thank him for that. And, and my brother, thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. You know, we and all stand we love brother. You. We love him, man. He's a strong, strong brother. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Got to keep it on. Thank Got you, brother. Keep going, King. Yes. Right. That's we, right. We, we actually met him at at at, um, at the trial for the officers and not the officers for the, the the white men. For the white. Yeah. Men. Oh no! Well, I say I apologize for the white men. We actually met him at the trial. And his, same same thing. 
same thing. Vigilantes are officers, officers are vigilantes, but we get the point. There you go. We're gonna, we're just gonna make sure we put it in the proper context. But yeah, we yeah. did meet him. But I just want to say, like, if people made a commitment to one day, if those politicians who want to come and get the notoriety for being in Selma want to say that they love, hey, Latasha. You got, you got everybody. You got everybody. All our people. They're doing, they're doing their podcast. I'm on their podcast. On our right podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's you. okay. We love you, Latasha. We love Latasha. Those are all our, these are all our. No, hours. she. She has a very specific question. Where y'all at? That means marching. You know, we got we gotta get back home to these kids. I gotta get to these kids real quick. But um, like I was saying, if they would make that one investment, if each of them would say, you know what, we're gonna do we're gonna invest a hundred thousand dollars to Selma to do something for Selma this year. You know, you if that happened every year, you know. The, the property right. value will grow and, and, and everything will grow in that. And nobody does anything. They just come there and they say, this is a historic place and we love it. And Selma meant this and Selma meant that. And they raise their hand and they raise their fist and they walk across. And most of them don't even walk across the bridge. They walk halfway across and then they take <laughs> and a picture they and they jump into the car and they go, oh, I mean, this is this is the reality. And, and the foot soldiers in the back that that's trying to make this walk Every time, and then the the, the 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 people from the town is stopped by Secret Service people and all, and, and it's like you know, it's 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 something that I'm like, it's not really genuine. And I love I love what Bloody Sunday represents for us as a people, and I love that we commemorate it. But I think that we have to do a lot more, and we we cannot allow you know these government officials or anybody, celebrity, whoever it is, to come and utilize the resources and the, the rich history of Selma without investing back in. Yeah, no, I agree. And let me say before you go, Mark, because I want to shift the conversation, so I'm going to give you a last point on this. But the way in which the people, the community, is sort of boxed out of being just even just a little bit closer, where they can really see and experience what's happening, that's very disheartening to me as well. And I think it's something that has to be addressed because people were were sending us messages on so on social media saying, "What are they doing all the way over there? We can't really hear, and people are passing out. It's super hot on Sunday in Selma at three and two and three o'clock in the afternoon, and it's almost like because people are so caught up in the celebrity of the moment, there is not enough attention being focused on the community that should be, they should be the first touch point. So I think there is, and I, and I don't know that people are doing it on purpose. I think it's just that we get, we are so celebrity driven at times that we somehow, we need to be reminded of the need to engage the people. So go ahead, you're going to have a point on that. Well, I, I agree with all that all of you both are saying, and um, we just don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> to put it that simple, sometimes the easiest explanation is the simplest one. We don't really understand our power, and we don't organize in the way we organized in 1965. Uh, as you all know, a lot of times, folks, when you come to some, it's also cathartic because we some of us stay up all night in the St. James Hotel and talk about these things. But but I remember when everything shifted. See, in 65, during the whole civil rights movement, the politicians reacted to the movement. The movement didn't react to the politicians. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson has quoted, if you, go, if you ever want to uh, uh, hear some real history, you can get a few laughs. Listen to the LBJ tape. 
And he says he gets up every morning. He first, before he gets the National Security Advisor Report, the National Security Briefing, he wants to know what Martin Luther King and Dick Gregory had said about him overnight. That is mm -hmm. what started his day. That was the influence that the movement had at that time. We abdicated that. And somehow our movement became um, absorbed by the Democratic Party and not even an ideology of the Democratic Party. Just this, that whatever we do or whatever we want done can't happen unless we get Democrats elected. That became our, our end rather than our means. And it absorbed us. I was uh, sharing uh, um, with, with a young person today. This isn't that long ago. We were, the three of us were alive. I was involved in it. Some, some of the biggest victories of our movement in the 80s, we blocked Robert Bork, Ronald Reagan's Supreme Court nominee. We can do that today. We did that in the 80s. We overruled Reagan on the Martin Luther King holiday. Reagan, the most powerful Republican president in recent memory, we beat him on the Martin Luther King holiday. We also beat him when it came to sanctions against South Africa. Today, we don't have that mentality. We weren't, we weren't discouraged because Reagan was a, a, a Republican. Today, this is what we say. Well, we can't do any of that stuff unless we get Democrats in office. We didn't wait to get Democrats in office to defeat Ronald Reagan on those three very important issues. What happened to us? Martin Luther King and all of them didn't wait for a Democrat to get in office to do what they needed to do. And when a Democrat was in office, they held that Democrat accountable. So something has happened to us where we have forgotten. And all these, I'm gonna be honest with you, some of our organizations have made it their, their call, their mission to see how many times they can get invited to the White House. Not to hold the White House accountable, but to be in the meeting, to take pictures and do all of that. They were holding up the march the other day, taking pictures with the White House. We were like, some of y'all go to the White House once a week anyway. Why do you need to see them in Selma too? Why not let the people in Selma see the, the uh, Vice President Kamala Harris? And, and so, you know, I don't know whether some of what is happening too and what happened in Selma on Bloody Sunday uh, when Kamala Harris came there. I'm going to try to put this as diplomatically as I can without violating the confidence she confided in me. But sometimes you don't know whether she herself is, is being steered in a direction so that she can fail. Mm. I, I'll just leave that there. Uh, uh, um, you know, there were just things that, that I observed that, that, that troubled right. me. Yeah. That the first black woman vice president and, and what she expressed to me privately gives me pause to wonder, you know, what is really going on? It, it wasn't her decision to keep the crowd from her. Mm -hmm. Whose decision was it then? Mm -hmm. it, it, and, and, and if this were a, a white male vice president and the president was about to be 80 years old, um, there would be a runway prepared. Every, think, go through history, y'all. Every incumbent mm -hmm. vice president is, is promoted as a successor to the incumbent president. That is not happening to the first black woman vice president, the first South Asian woman, the first Jamaican American woman. She checks about six, nine boxes, but that's not happening for her. And several women came up to me, even, even some white women. The, the president of the National Congress of Jewish Women, National Council of Jewish Women, spoke to me after the march. I said, Mark, this is something. Why is, why is this woman not being elevated in the way that a white male vice president? She stopped me on the bridge. 
to ask me that. I said, you know, these are all questions we have to answer. So when we look at all of it, all of these things are problematic. The lack of our voting rights, the performative aspects of this night, whereby um, people come in and take pictures and nothing can really be done about it. What did the news media do? Um, Mama Iva Carruthers at the Price Department was calling me last night. I wasn't even back in the hotel yet. All of the coverage on television was more focused on the vice president's remarks about the Ukraine. We're obsessed with the Ukraine. And don't get me wrong, it's a terrible thing. We want that to end. We want that war to end. Putin is a maniac. Uh, uh, Trump is his marionette. But <laughs> we were here yesterday for Selma. And, and, and while the Ukraine is being occupied by Russia, our communities are still being disproportionately occupied by the police who are still killing us, disproportionately uh, occupied by those who are trafficking guns and drugs to our young people. So we all in a war. One war, one community's suffering in a war is not greater than another's. And so while we stand with the safety of the people in Ukraine and want peace for them, Everybody else for the Ukraine ought to want the same for us in our own community. And I know that's what Dr. Francis Press Rosen would say if she were alive. Listen, I was gonna say, I was gonna go to Ukraine next, but I think you covered it already. That's it. That's <laughs> yeah, it, I'm man, because we got Ukraine, you, the Bro Ukraine is in the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? And Ukraine is literally yeah, in that's the Bronx right, right, that's right. So you, that's you're right. telling me they done, shot, they done stabbed a little young boy up in the, six years old yesterday in the Bronx. So. I, as much as I, my heart bleeds for everything that's going on in Ukraine, we have to acknowledge that we are at war in our own country, you know, and, and, and like you said, you know, watching the vice president and just seeing just there was a level, there wasn't a level of energy, right? It, it seems it seems as, as she's just dealing with a lot in herself, just understanding, like you said, they're noticing, we're noticing that she's not being lifted and elevated. She's not, her voice is not being pushed in places that it should be pushed, where she has the, the, the right to talk, where, you know, all the issues that are going on in our community, she should be the first one speaking up. You know, Blacks blacks got this president elected. Blacks got this whole ticket elected. She should be, her voice should be elevated. Black women have been the backbone of the Democratic Party for how long? Her voice should be elevated. You know what I'm saying? And we're not seeing that. And just watching yesterday, you know, usually I'm enthused, even though a lot of things that's going on inside of the, you know, inside of this administration, I'm not happy with. But usually just hearing her speak gives me a level of, like, okay, she sounds strong. But I, I, I didn't get that yesterday. I didn't you know, get it. I, either, I have Mark. to be honest. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. it. I didn't get it. I you know, I mean, I was, I was. I was a little concerned. I'm not, I think we all kind of felt the same thing. And you know, people get tired and it's hot and there's so much pushing. But it and was pulling. Selma. It was Selma. It was your moment, Black Queen. It was your moment. You was in Selma. You were speaking in front of your constituents, your people in your backyard with that. All these people died and, and sacrificed so you can be where you are right now. You're supposed to leave that place on fire. And you know, yeah, and it, yeah. it, it wasn't, that wasn't what happened. Well, well, I think it's a learning experience for us too, because frankly, vice presidents uh, are supposed to be secondary to the president. But mm -hmm. I think this is a special case. Let's all remember how she got there. This sister was not the first choice. Right. She is the vice president because it, the, uh, Chris Dodd, who was the former Senator Chris Dodd, who was the uh, search committee chair for the vice presidency, went public and said she was too ambitious. Mm. This so that caused a reaction 
a viral reaction amongst women throughout the country, not just black women, but all women. So wait a minute, you're punishing her for being too ambitious. Now, because the movement said, you now have to respect her because you called her ambitious, you can't disqualify her for being ambitious. That still does not mean they don't think she's too ambitious. So, mm. okay, we'll give you a job, but we ain't gonna let you do nothing. We're not gonna right. let you be seen. We're gonna make sure that you don't have as big of a crowd as someone else might have, okay? We, you know, we, so all of those things I think come into play. They didn't apologize for saying she was too ambitious. They just said, well, we'll go ahead and give her the job. Uh, but we're, we're in a perilous place because right now we know Republicans, what Republicans have done, I want everybody to think about this. What Republicans have done is, is move to those two extreme big words, big words to move that Dr. King used at the March on Washington. He said interposition and nullification. Mm-hmm. Um, they have made that, they have codified mm-hmm. that in law. So now the Senate literally does not function. And, and Martin III called me, he said, Mark, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'm saying we have to do. So Martin, we have to ask ourselves, what would your father have done if he had not had the power to get legislation passed like he did when he was alive. The power of Dr. King, he not only could put people on the street, but by putting people on the street, he got the 64 Voting Rights Act passed. He got the 65, uh, 64 Civil Rights Act passed. He got the uh, uh, 65 Voting Rights Act passed. In 68, after he died, because it was already in the, in the line, in the hopper, he got the Fair Housing Act passed. That was passed in memory of Dr. King not long after his assassination. But that was the will of the country at the time and the will of the people in power to follow that lead. That was logical. People in the streets, people had a demand, you pass legislation. If this Senate were in existence, he would have, would have been alive. And this filibuster would have been in full effect. There, as it is today, in the form that it's in today, not a talking filibuster like it was back then, we would have, we would have gotten none of those pieces of legislation passed. Mm-hmm. And so the answer to our problems is, is meditating and, and studying and trying to understand what would Dr. King have done? And what do we know, Mice? Malcolm X came to Selma. See, we, we, none of this was by accident. Malcolm came to Selma. He had already been ousted from the nation. He was coming to Selma to join Dr. King. That mm. was the plan. Malcolm could have been killed at any time, but he wasn't killed until he came to Selma. Two weeks after he came to Selma, met with Coretta King, went to visit Dr. King in jail. They killed Malcolm X. The agreement was that when Dr. King got out of jail, he was in jail in Birmingham at the time, that he and Malcolm would go together, together, and petition the United Nations under the, the International Declaration of Human Rights in terms of what our people were dealing with. Dr. King agreed to go with Malcolm. They were going to stand together. If Malcolm and Martin had been able to come together, stand together, and organize together, this whole country would have been forever changed. Mm. And on that, Mark, Man, like this, because that's 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 what it is. That's Thank it, what it you, is. Mark. Thank you so much. We knew you were the right one to help follow up uh, to uh, our Bloody Sunday experience. And I just want to say that even though we are ch- challenging, we're asking questions, we're probing, we are concerned about what we saw in Selma. We are concerned about this movement in general, where we are today. We are challenging ourselves. What more can we do? I'm sure you have that conversation, you know, with yourself all the time, because that's what great leaders do. You challenge yourself and you challenge what is going on around you. But it does not take away the importance of walking across that bridge every single year, getting recommitted and getting refired up 
to go back to your local communities and do the work. And I know that having Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright of Black Gold is Matter and uh, Barbara Arnwine of Transformative Justice Coalition and uh, Reverend Barbara there of the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Jesse Jackson and all the folks that are in the room that being together in that place, those folks are busy. You're busy. We got plenty, plenty of things to do, including the fact that people have families. As my son said, he's got to give back to his children. And yet we still take the time to be together and to show up in that space because every single day, the fighting that we do on the ground, we have to be reminded that there were people who suffered a greater sacrifice and challenge than we have um, and, and but we have a responsibility to keep this work going. So I just want to thank you for being you. You, you, have, you deal with everybody's stuff, yes, <laughs> not just in Selma, but in all of these situations, everything from the Million Man March to the marches on Washington to the Women's March to everything. We always can depend on Mark Thompson to be at the center and to be a great voice. And if anyone has ever, if you missed it, you need to pay attention to the fact that Mark Thompson runs a program like nobody we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, bless you Mark all. Thank you for having me. Let me just say, folks, what the three of us have all under the sound of our voices is also irrevocable solidarity. We all got to stick together. Yes, Our enemies are always constantly trying to divide us. What me and this sister and this brother have together is an irrevocable solidarity. We need that all with each other. We need that with all of our movements and our organizations. I come to Selma to get re-energized. Selma is our political Easter. There was blood, there was a crucifixion. We come here, the people on that bridge were crucified. The top of that bridge was our political Calvary. And we can either wear crosses around our necks or we can wear a little Selma Bridges. It's all the same thing. That's why our people's blood was shed for the sins of America to change this country. So we invite people to come to Selma, get re-energized with all of us, and then get back out in the streets and fight and all of us stick together and not allow yeah. our enemies to divide us to have the unity that Dr. King sought for which, for which he was killed or for which Malcolm was killed. That is our calling, that is our mission. That is what we must do as a people. How can people follow your show? And and because you know you got to do your business, your fitness on here too, Mark. So folks on Twitter, uh, make it plain. Uh, on Instagram, minister with two T's. On Facebook as well, make it plain. Make it plain .com. Just look at make it plain. We are uh, everywhere. Thank you make you it plain. We love you, Mark. You the man. Love you all too. Peace. Thank you, Peace. Mark. Peace. Be like safe. You. All right. Man, that was really, really good. I mean, yeah. people need to listen to what Mark said. I mean, we got to find a way, because I know we put out clips of the show, but sometimes folks don't, you know, go and really listen to the whole show and, and get the full context. Somehow we need to really make sure that people get an opportunity to hear what Mark just laid out because there was there was a lot that was in that you know short time that we had him on with us. Yep, it was a lot, man. Mark is Mark is like an encyclopedia, man. He's mm -hmm. he's been around. He knows the history, you know, and he's able like he's like his show, make it plain. He's able to give it to you in context that you can actually 
understand. And, he, and he's been around some of the greats and he's been in the rooms with the greats and he's organized and he's done so much. So it's a blessing that we have someone that we can call a brother with that level of expertise and knowledge in this area, man. So mm -hmm. always, always a pleasure just to listen to Mark, give it to you like he give it to you. We learned so much. I mean, the gems that he dropped in the end where he talks about Selma, um, and he talks now about uh, Malcolm X, right? Yeah, well, I'm just you know. talking about where he explains how Malcolm X came to Selma. We know that Malcolm and Martin were starting to get closer. We know that they were uh, sorting, you know, starting to put their differences aside and realizing that they were more powerful as a unit. Uh, you know, time ran out, but I think we are now, you know, with us working with different groups and the way in which we're trying to be intentional about our own work and our own collaborations, that um, is a continuation of what they were attempting to do. But every time we get close to those things, and you think about the Women's March and just so many different areas where this COINTELPRO mindset seeps in, they know at this point to kill us brutally, uh, although they have killed some of our foot soldiers that have been out there in places like Ferguson and other places across the nation. So it is not mm -hmm. to say that they won't, but there are certain individuals they've decided that, you know what, when we killed in the past, we created martyrs. We created a bigger moment. So instead of killing them physically, we now have this thing called destroy social media yeah. where we will try to destroy and discredit them um, and make sure that people are not, don't really trust them enough. And we keep the communities dumbed down with, you know, the, the whatever kind of nonsense they continue to pump into our minds every day. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbroke, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
just in, in, in the spirit of that, you know, I've been trying to make my, I don't get it, go just a little bit left, you know, and go into certain things that's of the culture, you know, and, and just talking about division, just talking about separation, just talking about how they try to devalue us and disrespect and, and, and normalize this level of disrespect and devaluing us. You know, um, I've been, you know, I'm always in the hip hop community because that's what, that's what I come from. I come from hip hop and I listen to music. And, um, and, and there was a story yesterday about Joe Budden, who is somebody that is cool with me. And um, there's, they have a group called Slaughterhouse that they, that Eminem have signed. It was Joe Buttons, it was Royce Five Nine, it's um, Joel Ortiz and King Crooked Eye. These are dope lyricists. And um, so everybody, they never actually released a, a real album. They, people wanted them to release an album. For some reason, the Slaughterhouse album never really, did what it was supposed to do, you know? And um, a lot of people want, wanted them like, yo, Joe Buttons had retired. Roy said, you know, he, he, he had pretty much moved away from it. Everybody had moved into different areas. And um, listening to Joel and, and, and Crooked, they, somehow they got a deal on the table to do a Slaughterhouse album, but the rest of them didn't want. I don't know the particulars of it. Neither, neither here nor there, they got a deal. And um, they, I think they're releasing the project coming up shortly called um, The Death of the Slaughterhouse or whatever. And um, so there was a debate. Royce and Joe Buttons was on there live talking and Joel Ortiz came on and they started talking about their issues, you know? And these are people that, I, I, you know, to the most people, they're like brothers, you know? This is, they were in a group. They always had respect for each other. They spoke up for each other. And during the conversation, you know, they were talking about the album and they were saying, and, and Joe Bunn said, yo, I wish you the best. And then Joe said, oh, well, if you wish us the best and support the album, tell people to go get the album. And, and Joe said, and I quote, that album can suck my dick, right? So, and I'm listening to it. And a lot of people say, well, he didn't tell him to do these things. And I'm saying, when did we start normalizing as men? Because where I'm from, right? You don't utilize that language to another man. That's just not a conversation you have. Like, if I was in prison. In prison, you could die telling a man that. In the streets, that was always fighting where you might get shot for saying that to a man. It, just in just in a conversation, you didn't want to utilize your private, you didn't want to invite any man to your private parts or invite or utilize that context in a conversation where there was heated or disrespect, it was a level of disrespect that you didn't want to even talk to unless you had real issues with them. Now, these are people that I call brothers, you know, and I was gonna hit Joe privately and say something about it, but it's a public thing and it's not really saying, and I'm just, I wanna know, not really about Joe, but when did this become a thing? Like I watch these young kids on the internet every day, SMD, you can SMD. And I'm like, how did we get so far to utilize levels of disrespect that once could have got you killed and still can get you killed or shot or harmed if you say to the wrong person. When did we normalize this level of disrespect to each other? People that you that you once had levels of good friendship, how did we go from, all right, we don't, we don't agree to SMD, to saying things that you know is a bit, because, and you can tell by the reaction that Joel T's had, because he said it back to him, and then he made a statement like, you're going to wish you didn't say that. And it's like, wow, 
How did us as brothers and people in our communities started utilizing language and, and disrespect so fluently? And, that's, and when we talk about the death and, and the violence in our communities, it's because we've normalized disrespecting each other. And I just don't get how that became a thing. I just don't get how did we just get so comfortable and just disrespecting and saying the worst things that people say, your mother, I wish your mother this. Like, those are things that when I grew up, it was like, wow, you, you must trying to kill somebody when you talk about their mother or you invite them to your private parts. You know, and I just really don't get how did we allow a culture, anything to, to normalize disrespect, to normalize saying the most vulgar and disrespectful things that we can in any context to each other as brothers, just as men in general, you know? And it, well, it sounds like there is more trauma. I th it sounds like there's some other stuff going on. And to your point, when you say, well, um, you know, you're like, well, it seemed like they were brothers, but when people say things like that to one another, it must be something deeper going on. That's what it sounds like to me. But I would just say that from the larger context, that's just what's happening in the world. Like everything, everywhere we turn, even the way that young people deal with their parents, even the way that young black men speak to their mothers. I watch it every single day, how much, how it, it's like it's been, um, it's like it's the, the value of a mother is not the same. And perhaps some of these young people might say, well, my mother doesn't act like the mothers of, you know, a different time. So I think we as a people, all of us really have to start checking ourselves and realizing that even in our level of frustration, we could be angry going through different things, but there's time and place. There is ways in which things should be said. And I think we've gotten, we've, we, maybe we're just like ticking time bombs where everybody is just ready to go off and do and say the worst things that we can to harm another person because we really are hurting inside. Yeah, maybe. We really are, man. I just, it's, it saddens me that we've normalized this level of disrespect. And it's, it's, it's directly correlates to the level of violence in our communities. Because when you normalize disrespect like that and you can and you can say the most disrespectful and the worst things possible to just people that that you don't really have any real animosity and real anger towards, these are not your enemies. These are people that you've been in community with, people that you've been in relation with, people that you've been, that you once called family. When you can utilize certain terms, when you can get into argument with your brother and talk about you gonna shoot him, or one of your family members say, I'll shoot you and I'll kill you. It's like, how do, how do you wanna harm someone that, how, do you, how does it get that bad? How do we get so comfortable with this level of disrespect or just willing to take you completely out of here for a disagreement. And it's just like, man, we we have to do better, you know, and boycott black murder in this campaign. You know, we have to talk about those things because I realized that th those are direct correlations to what's going on in our communities, man. So I want to I want to start the healing, man, because I I'm just flabbergasted. I, I watch disagreements and arguments and, and they play out on the internet and, it and it's public, right? And that's what I say all the time. When you publicize negativity and you publicize you know conflicts and you say certain things to people it's not just like you saying it in the room with me and you and we could go out there are people that you said this in front of and the, the male ego 
says, I can't allow you to talk to me that way. And then there are people who are going to edge you on and say, oh, you saw. People see me. People watch you de-escalate the situation and tell you that you saw. You know, but my ego is not. I don't have any problem with that because the movement and the, and the trajectory that I'm on now, it's about, you know, de-escalation. Right. I, I, I don't have any ego. I, I don't think that because I don't want to hurt you, or I don't want to fight with you makes me so. There are a lot of people who don't abide by that. They think you trying to de-escalate something means that you're scared or you saw. And the internet will, you know, project that, continue to, to, to heighten that sense of ideology. So if we understand that, why would we publicly disrespect people who don't have the emotional competence and strength to move past their ego? That it, it, with this energy of violence is going to be incentivized because now you don't disrespect this person or perceive disrespect to a level that a million people have seen and they're going to be DMing them and say, oh, you soft, you ain't do nothing bad. You let them talk to you like that, this and that. And they got to deal with that. And it's like, we just, we just got to do better because, you know, until we, until we acknowledge the problems and the way that violence and negativity is spread in our communities, there's no way that we're going to be able to stop it. Mm. So with that said, we have another dope episode. Shout out to our brother, one of our mentors, one of our educators, Mark Thompson, Make It Plain. Make sure you go to his show. Shout out to everybody. We didn't talk about this, but March 9th today is the anniversary of the passing of the late, great B.I.G. Biggie Smalls. He's one of my influences, man. I never got to meet Biggie Smalls, but his music definitely inspired me into hip hop and what he meant so much to just hip hop in general, not mainly to Brooklyn and New York, but what he meant to hip hop in general was something that has last till now. You know, it's mm -hmm. been it's been about over two decades since Biggie's passed, and he still has an impact that is unmatched. Only only person that I see with that level of impact is him and Tupac. So shout out to the late great B.I.G. and shout out to his family his daughters, his son, his mother, everybody that he left here, the whole Junior Mafia, which is my family, Lil' Kim, you know, RIP, today is Biggie Day. Salute you, Big King. Yeah. And Biggie Smalls. Yes, Biggie Smalls. <laughs> baby, baby. And with that said, I'm not going to always be right. Tamika Mallory's not going to always be wrong, but we will both always, and I mean always, be authentic. Salute. Peace. That's how we own it. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.